I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Christos Tombras, a supervising psychoanalyst with a Lacanian orientation, practicing in London. He's a member of the Center for Freudian Analysis and Research, and lectures, runs workshops, and facilitates reading groups. His main research interest is in the dialogue between continental philosophy and psychoanalysis. We're specifically discussing his new book, Discourse Ontology, Body and the Construction of a World, from Heidegger through Lacan, which is part of the Palgrave Lacan series, published in 2019. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Trapart Books, 2019, and also available as an ebook through iBooks and Kindle. For more information, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T R A. P-A-R-T dot net. You may also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. By profession, I'm a psychoanalyst, and uh, I'm working in the Lacanian orientation, and so I'm aware of Lacanian theory and so on, but also I'm aware of the need to have some kind of philosophical backing of this theory or any theory. So let's say then that I'm interested in the theory as well as in the philosophy of psychoanalysis. So uh, the book is about Heidegger and Lacan. And uh, originally, I was informed about Heidegger, about Heidegger's connection to Lacan from Lacan. Lacan speaks a lot about Heidegger, especially in the beginning. Uh, He makes explicit references. But then you can see that uh, he's in a kind of discussion. Um, uh, Let's say, yes, a kind of discussion, a dialogue with, with Heidegger until the end of his teaching Lacan. So I was very interested in that, to see what it is, this is all about. And uh, I went to Heidegger and I found two things. The first thing is that Heidegger is very opaque and difficult to understand, so I couldn't get really the whole of what he's talking about. And the second is that he attacks psychoanalysis, very rigorously actually. 
So he's very against Freud, and we can return to this, and very against uh, this kind of, he calls it, modern way of approaching the human being. He thinks that something is missing there. So I got even more perplexed by that. How is it, how can we reconcile these two things? First, we have Heidegger, who is, who has a very opaque theory, philosophy, and ontology, and then we have and he is against psychoanalysis, and then we have uh, Lacan, who is very interested in Heidegger. So, this contradiction, I saw that as a contradiction originally, was a challenge for me. And I thought, okay, let's see what we have here. So, I started getting into Heidegger by going to his own teacher, Heidegger's teacher. I went to Husserl, and Husserl who is the founder of phenomenology, is a kind of philosophical school that Heidegger belongs as well. Uh, and Heidegger actually calls his method phenomenological. So I, I went to Husserl. Husserl said this thing. Uh, he has said many things, but we can summarize Husserl in this motto, that consciousness is not just a thing in itself, it is always directed towards some objects things. So in order to understand consciousness, Husserl said, we need to go to the things themselves. Okay, what does this mean to go to the things themselves? And what is this consciousness, what he speaks about? Obviously, being a psychoanalyst, I'm thinking consciousness, is, it, is there any connection between the two? The, the term consciousness as it is used in psychoanalysis and the term consciousness as it is used in philosophy. Not really. It's not exactly the same. Obviously, they are related, but not exactly the same. So, I understood Heidegger as going one step further from uh, Husserl in not only thinking that we have to turn to the things themselves, but also taking the question of consciousness as a center, central starting point. What is consciousness? What do we take for granted when we speak about consciousness? the critique, let's say, of Heidegger, of Husserl's, against Husserl, is that uh, the, the concept of consciousness is taken for granted. While if we see the phenomena, and Heidegger said, yes, we tend to the phenomena, that's phenomenology. If we look at the phenomena, we will see that we don't start with consciousness. We have just a human being. The human being being there the human being being there in the world. So Heidegger says, okay, the original, the starting point cannot be but the human being in its being there, and he calls that design, and the human being as a being in the world. And he said, this is not a question about a world that contains a human being and could not, and in some other conceptualization, it might not contain human beings. It's not that, he says, as long as we are speaking about humans, and as long as we are interested about what it is to be human, we have this uh, primary data. The human being as such, design, and its being in the world as a, as a, uh, how can we say it? as a compound entity. It's not the human being and the world, but they're both together. 
Okay, good. Before I go further with Heidegger, because he starts from that and he goes on from that. Another thing that I found out early in my thinking about Heidegger is obviously his Nazi connections. He has been accused, and rightly so, that he was affiliated, um, friendly, to ideas of Nazi, Nazi um, philosophy. So that was a big question for me. What do we do with that? Uh, and, okay, it's a huge debate. There are few people, many people actually, who choose to dismiss Heidegger altogether on the basis of his Nazi, uh, Nazi-friendly ideas. I thought that this is a bit extreme, it's a bit ad hominem. Let's see what in the philosophy of Heidegger could be thought as related to anything Nazi. What I told you about just now, just earlier, about phenomenology and starting from the human being and seeing the compound entity of human being in the world and human being in its being there, I don't see anything Nazi in that. It is actually a simple conclusion uh, if you take the Husserl's idea to the extreme, it follows. And one cannot accuse Husserl of being Nazi. Not easily. I don't think you can do that. So I say, okay, I will take from Heidegger whatever it is needed for my thinking, because after all, I'm thinking in connection to psychoanalysis. And anything that is related, even remotely related, with Nazi and political theory and uh, conclusions of that sort, I will discard it. I'm not interested. So, okay. Let's see now. Heidegger, I, I said earlier, that he has a very rigorous critique of psychoanalysis. Its critique follows from this idea about consciousness being not a primary datum. His idea, Heidegger's idea, is that we only speak about consciousness because we are... Um, It's difficult to avoid being in, the, in an understanding of the world which is Cartesian, mainly. Descartes has started thinking about the world in terms of uh, an intellect that sees the world and tries to understand what is the source, what can be the source of truth and the source of certainty. And the Cartesian understanding has the human being, the intellect, is the subject, and the world has been objective there. And Descartes tries to understand truth in terms of objectivity. He presents truth in terms of objectivity and unavoidable conclusions, mathematical conclusions, really. This is the source of certainty in Descartes. So Heidegger says that when we speak about subject and object, we are already in Descartes' way of thinking. But Descartes' way of thinking is a conclusion, it's not a primary datum. If we want to go to the primary datum, we go before consciousness. And when Freud, when Heidegger says uh, things about psychoanalysis, he says that Freud had to postulate consciousness because, uh, no, uh, un the unconscious, 
sorry, I confused a bit here. One of the major uh, one of the major concepts of psychoanalysis is the unconscious. And Heidegger says this is a fabrication. This is a lie, not, not a lie. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. Where does he stand when he says that? He stands on the on this observation that you can only no, you need to postulate the unconsciousness, the unconscious, because you are already thinking of the world in terms of conscious, subject versus object. So Heidegger says Freud thinks that he speaks about the phenomena, thinks that he speaks about the human being. Uh, objectively and scientifically and without preconceptions, but in fact he has preconceptions, and he is using, he accepting, he is accepting uncritically, a number of concepts which are actually, uh, which will fail as soon as we look at them a bit more closely. The unconscious is one of his concepts. Repression is one of his concepts. All this, uh, all this uh, arsenal of uh, ideas and models and theories and uh, mechanisms that Freud introduces, Heidegger says, are only following because he has a wrong starting point. So to make it a bit more clear, Heidegger does not refuse to accept that there are things, for example, dreams, or slips of the tongue, or things like this. He only says that Freud reaches conclusions about them uh, starting from a wrong starting point, from a problematic starting point. Uh, so, this Heidegger's critique, uh, criticism on Freud, goes a bit more, is a more extensive, it's not only about Freud. He says, Heidegger says, that modern science, after Descartes, started looking at the human being as an object and started thinking of the human being and other beings, all the beings in the world, as objects which have specific features. And these features are quantifiable. And it speaks, science speaks about these features for as long as they can be, the features can be quantifiable. And the ones which are not quantifiable, uh, modern science neglects. For example, we see that we have psychiatry and tries to understand, for example, the situations like depression, and it needs to make it measurable in order to start uh, speaking about it. And how can you measure, can you measure depression? Not directly. You can measure it only indirectly by having questionnaires and having uh, this kind of interviews that you speak and you say from a, from a scale from zero to nine, how much, how did you feel today, how, and so on and so forth. And Heidegger says that this is actually an impoverishment of what it is to be human. That modern science, in its attempt to speak about the human being objectively, which is already a Cartesian approach, makes the human being a set of quantities, quantifies it. And this is a problem and uh, for Heidegger. And actually, for this reason, he was against modernity and against modern science. And many people accuse him that he is a mysticist, 
that he goes into mystical uh, directions and so on and so forth. The st- whatever he does, the starting point is a strong point. You cannot ag- ignore it. Personally, reading Heidegger, I thought this is an argument that cannot be ignored, not easily ignored. And uh, in fact, I thought that the critique of Heidegger's, of psychology, psychiatry, of psychoanalysis, is can be devastating. So the question is, how do we respond to this? Because we need to respond. So I turned to Lacan. And you can see this. Okay, Lacan has a very long work. I mean, 50 years of writing and teaching and speaking. And it is uh, it has changed a lot from the beginning towards the end. But you can see certain basic ideas are always there in Lacan. One idea is that he doesn't embrace uh, fully uh, at least a superficial understanding of Freud that involves unconscious, the drives, instincts, and so on, as a kind of mechanistic, uh, this kind of mechanistic reading of Freud. Lacan was saying, let's try to see what Freud really meant, a return to Freud. So, in order to go in to see what Freud really meant, Lacan says, observes this, that whenever Freud speaks about the unconscious, when he actually speaks about the phenomena that have to do with the unconscious, he always speaks about phenomena that involve language. And it is, for example, a wrong word, a slip of the tongue, or it is a linguistic construction like a dream that you describe and doesn't make sense. And the whole problem of the phenomenon, the whole problematic of Freud is to try to account for this non-rational phenomena, which, however, are known to us through language. And he chooses to understand the unconscious, not in terms of a hidden dark entity in the depths of the psyche that does funny things, but rather as a a rupture, a cut in the flow of rationality. So while you speak, you make a mistake, that's a cut. Something is broken there. Some continuity is broken. When you remember something and then you forget it, or you try to remember a name and then you forget it, again, it is an interruption. So Lacan reads the Freudian unconscious as an interruption in the flow of what we can call consciousness and rationality. But it's not just an interruption. This interruption has an internal logic. Lacan observes this logic and he says, very early on, and until the end of his career, he was actually saying, the unconscious is structured like a language. Towards the end, he was actually making making it more explicit. He was saying, that's redundant. I should say, either the unconscious is structured, or the unconscious is language. Th- seeing the unconscious as a structure, and seeing the formations of the unconscious as interruptions in rationality 
then if we can do that, we see that the, the understanding of Freud that, require, that has the unconscious as a deep source of instincts in the depth of the psyche is a bit problematic. And in that way, we can actually sidestep the... Not sidestep. We push aside, actually, the counter-argument of Heidegger. Because, really, what Heidegger is against is that people who read Freud are saying, and not really Freud, if we think of Freud in terms of what Lacan is understanding. Lacan approaches the Freudian unconscious not in terms of an entity which is in the deep depth, depths of the psyche and does things that uh, are surprising us, but rather as interruptions in the flow of consciousness. Oh, mm, not consciousness, in the flow of rationality. That you are speaking and you are going to say things in an uninterrupted way, but you are interrupted and surprised by the unconscious, by something which we can call unconscious. This unconscious, the formations, the manifestations of this unconscious, the manifestations of these interruptions seem very clearly to have a structure. And this structure is that makes Lacan uh, introduce this motto that the unconscious is structured like language. Throughout his career, he, throughout his teaching, Lacan tries actually to account for this structure, to describe it to approach it, to study it, and describe it as best as he can. He never stops thinking about this structure, the structure of the unconscious, and the structure of the manifestations of the unconscious. Even when very late in his career he speaks about topology and Borromean notes and so on, this is his main objective. He's trying to account for this structure. I hadn't really thought about Heidegger's point of Freud coming from this um, like more Descartian view of subject and object. And of mm. course, as you said, Lacan kind of shifts our perception of Freud from what Heidegger is saying. But that's an interesting idea and is a really good argument f you know, for problems of like the basis of modern sciences and the way that we're looking at things in general. Yeah. So that was a really interesting point. Why do you think Lacan is so interested in Heidegger? I mean, I mean, when Lacan, when Heidegger tries to sidestep the, the question, the, the point of view of Descartes, he is introducing this, the big, uh, these two concepts that I said earlier, design and being in the world. And he, Heidegger, uh, thematizes questions of what it is to be human in terms of this, the, the body, even though Heidegger doesn't speak about the body, and in terms of an original inclusion of the body in the world, which is non-Cartesian. I think Lacan is interested in that because it makes very good sense. I, I could only say that. Of course, there are connections. Lacan was going to lectures about Hegel by Coire, and Coire was a student of Heidegger. So there is this kind of intellectual climate where by Heidegger was being discussed in the circles that Lacan was frequenting. But it's not only this. I think that Heidegger offers a way uh, into the 
basic material of what it is to be human that avoids problems, avoids uh, traps, uh, Cartesian traps, and Lacan can see that. Lacan can see what uh, the mistakes, let's call them, is it correct to call them mistakes? Can see the shortcomings of uh, other readings of Freud, which do not actually understand the extent to which Freud is Cartesian himself. And Lacan tries to find a way through it. How can I be, Lacan is as if he's asking himself, how can I be Freudian and yet not fall into the trap of Cartesianism? And Heidegger in the beginning offers him a way forward. I think this is the main, the starting point. This is how he, be, he became interested. And in the beginning too, you described Heidegger as seeing kind of the person phenomenologically being in this kind of interplay between the world and the self. Like instead of just being an ob object and subject, there's more of an interplay between the two. And that's so much more reflective of a lot of the theory happening nowadays is that we're seeing that we're more this kind of dynamic process rather than just being like a self that's kind of isolated from the external world around us. Yes, uh, and actually, in fact, not only sees the human being as a person and interaction, uh, interplay with the world, he actually goes even further, says the question of person doesn't even, cannot even be posed, uh, raised, unless we have an understanding. We have an original understanding of what it is to be human and what it is to be in the world, which has to be taken as an original datum, Heidegger says. And uh, hence they're using the term design and the compound expression being in the world. And uh, yes, that's a, that's a very important starting point. Yeah, that's yeah. even more in line with like this like post-Foucault kind of realm that we're in. Hmm. I had I was at a conference recently where one of the people in the audience asked me if like if I thought that we even exist at all or if we're all just these kinds of interplays of reflections and projections um, of one another. Hmm. Yes. Um, and then of course you you were bringing up the body and that's the name of your book Discourse Ontology Body and the Construction of a World from Heidegger through Lacan. I think that the body had really gotten lost in psychoanalysis for decades, it feels like, and that Lacan uh, brought us back to, the, back to the body and listening to the body speak um, in a way that had really gotten lost, you know. I mean, at least for me, I, I, I was trained in New York at a place that was very ego psychology, you know, and that we didn't even pay attention to the body, <laughs> the body speaking, yeah. which I found very bizarre. Yes. I, I think what, what Lacan brings with the body is he brings this differentiation between uh, the realm of the symbolic, the realm of the imaginary, but the realm of the real. That things start on the body, they start in the real. And from the body, something is being constructed. And the way the construction is being, is happening, is being, uh, no, is happening. The, the way this construction is happening is actually of critical importance for psychoanalysis. The idea about neurosis being a different structure from psychosis, 
or the idea of the structuring of the psyche would not make sense at all if we didn't pay attention to what the body is doing. And we have the world affecting the body, and then we have the, the attempt of the human being actually to make, is it correct to say, to make sense of it. Let's call it to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. And in order to make sense, you take parts of what is happening in the body and you make them into meaningful entities, into signifiers. And you occupy a world, you construct a world and you occupy it by making some kind of sense of what's happening to, you, to your body. This idea that resuns the effects of the real onto the body is being transformed into signifiers. And signifiers are interconnected into a discourse, a network is what Lacan brings in psychoanalysis. And I think this is revolutionary, really, because it, yes, it actually focuses on the phenomena at, at the source of the phenomena. Now, there is always a question here. We are already in language. We are already subjects of something. We are speaking. We are already in a discourse. I'm speaking to you, you are speaking to me, we understand each other, we try to understand each other. In an analysis, people speak and they have expectations and so on. This is a, a discursive universe that has been already constructed. The difficulty for any kind of proper study of this is that we cannot step aside and look at it. We cannot step aside from language and speak about language. We cannot step aside of the body and speak about the body. And Lacan insists about that by this small sentence, there is no meta-language. There is no meta-point on which we can stand in order to discuss these issues. There is always a circularity. We are always within language, trying to understand about the origins of language. And we are always within the world, trying to understand how the world is constructed. And that's a tricky thing. And it is a tricky thing for Lacan. It is a tricky thing for Heidegger as well. And it is a tricky thing of being human. You cannot avoid it. Heidegger says that this is not a virtuous uh, circle. It's a virtuous circle. You are already in the world, and then you can see that you are in the world. And this is the primary datum. And Lacan says similar, almost the same thing saying that there is no meta-language. But if there is no meta-language, then what can we think? And how can we think about these questions? And this is where my book comes in, actually. I thought that a way to, first, it's very visible, it was visible to me, that these different conceptualizations do have something in common, and in fact can be bridged. This was my starting point with a question mark. Can they be bridged? And if they can, how could they be bridged? And then I see this conclusion, the conclusion of Lacan's, that the linguistic universe that we are occupying is actually a universe of signifiers, interconnected signifiers, a discourse. So Lacan introduces the concept of discourse to describe how all signifiers are interconnected, and how gaps in the interconnections, the unconscious we were saying earlier, are actually manifested. He has his theory of discourses, but all of this 
is starting from a discourse. I say, I suggest that we see discourse as more general than the theory of discourses, which is a specific attempt at formulating how this works. So we start from a discourse, but what are we constructing when we are in a discourse? We are able to make some sense of the world around us. And it is not correct to say around us as if we could avoid it because we are already in the world anyway. But we start creating some, a network of sense, a network of intelligibility. The world can have a meaning. We do not know what the meaning is, but can have a meaning. So things which are happening are not arbitrary. When we do that, we start seeing objects. I see this is an object. I see that is a face. I see that is my mother. I see that is my father. The process which is described by Lacan as the installment of the imaginary is a construction of a world. A world is being constructed when you start identifying objects in it, entities in it. And this is an ontology. So an ontology is a collection of entities that can have a meaning for us. How, this, how is this collection of entities constructed? How is ontology constructed? Through discourse. So I suggest that this is the, the bridging to make an ontology from discourse, a discourse ontology. And then I'm thinking, okay, let's say that this is what we try to do. What are the basic themes of this? How is it, uh, how is it happening? Obviously, we are already in it. We cannot step aside and say, first this has happened, then that has happened, and then something else has happened. We cannot do that. We can, but it is a fantasy, it's a myth. We can make a myth. So I don't intend to do that. But I'm saying that this discourse ontology can only be thought if we recognize a number of themes, of threads. And there are five threads that I have identified. The one is the speaking being and the origin of signifierness, the origin of significations. One thread is this. The second is what is truth? The question of truth. Truth not only meaning uh, the truthfulness of a, of a statement or the veracity and um, however, if I can justify a belief or not, not only in this practical sense, truth, but in the sense of how can we accept the world as it is. This that Freud calls Bejahung, the acceptance, the original acceptance of the world. Truth in that sense is related both with Freudian idea of Bejahung and Heideggerian idea of truth as aletheia, the ancient Greek concept. And also it's related to Lacan when he speaks about introduction into into the world and there is no meta-language, meaning when he says that there is no meta-language, that there, there is no proof for the truth. You have to accept the truth as truth. So truth is the, the, the second part, uh, the second thread that we can see. And I can say a bit more about truth in a second. The other thing that comes, the other thread that is necessary is in order to construct this discourse ontology, 
is the concept of time. We are already in time anyway, but when human beings enter in time, time becomes an issue for human beings as such. That is, we are operating in time, but then suddenly, not suddenly, it so happens that time also is an issue for us. To make a distinction, a computer operates in time, but time is not an issue for the computer. A digital camera operates in time, but time is not an issue for the digital camera. Human beings operate in time, and time is an issue for human beings. Even in the sense that um, I have to speak, and it takes some time for my sentence to be formulated and be pronounced. So time is the third aspect, the third thread of this discourse ontology. Then it is a question of the body and how you end up occupying your body. In Lacanian terminology, this is a question of sexuation, the gender identity that you are going to obtain, which is not related, sometimes it coincides, is not related with uh, biological uh, sex that you may have. It might coincide, but doesn't necessarily coincide. It's ha it has many, mainly to do with the ways the individual, the human being, the speaking being, enters into a, this discursive world that has been constructed. So the question of the body and sexuation is one thread. And the final thread is how all of these things all of these things fit together, which is the question of the world, the construction of the world. So I'm suggesting, in short, that in order to see, in order to make a full account of the human being in its being human and it, in its uh, suffering in the world, we need to take something from Heidegger and something from Lacan and construct with them something which I call discourse ontology. I'm not presenting it as a final and fully constructed thing. In fact, it would be a fallacy to think that it can be fully constructed, because I also remember Lacan speaking and screaming that there is no meta-language. If I did say that I can construct, or it is possible to construct a full account of this, it is as if I'm saying that it can be a fully metalinguistic construct within language. That is not possible. That is not possible in philosophy. And this is something that Heidegger actually thought and saw and refrained from, not refrained, gave up his attempt to have his fundamental ontology. That is not possible in, uh, in mathematics. In mathematics, all attempts to make a fully formal system that can self-contained and self-sustainable have failed and that is not possible in or not have failed not because of failure it has failed because it is not possible um, with mathematics and in the same way i think it's not possible in philosophy or psychoanalysis you cannot make a full account of everything you can only make a program a research program trying to see things a bit more clearly as clearly as possible gradually a bit more clearly, one hope. Yeah, and they're always talking about, like in physics, they're always searching for this like one piece that they figured out must be there because then it will make everything else make sense and fit together, but they can't ever quite figure out what this piece is or it keeps, yeah. they keep finding out a closer and closer account of it, which then changes things, you know? 
Yeah, th this is this is a very valid and very noble, really, hope that you can have a full account of everything and in physics and so on, and it keeps them moving. And it is good that we have it, that they have this uh, hope. But the truth to be said is not possible to actually have it. If nothing else, because we are discursive entities within a world that we have constructed within a discourse ourselves. We are not gods of ourselves. And we can accept gods if we want, but we are not gods ourselves. And uh, with mathematics specifically, uh, it has been proven that this is not possible. Not only people failed to do it, but it has been proven, mathematically proven, that it's not possible. Uh, they, they, these are the famous uh, results of Gödel and the completeness theory, uh, theorem and so on. So I guess, I think that it, we can take it as a corollary that it's not possible in philosophy, it's not possible in psychoanalysis to have a full account of everything. And you mentioned something in the very beginning which has stuck that I wanted to ask you about too. You mentioned mm -hmm. the difference between consciousness in psychoanalysis and consciousness in philosophy. What do you think the difference is? Yes. I mean, in, in philosophy, consciousness is, we postulate consciousness because we want to postulate the agency behind uh, the intellect. So the intellect is looking at the world, and as long as the intellect has some kind of self-image, and, uh, and a conception, a notion of itself, we can call it that consciousness. Uh, so it, it is in this sense that it's used in, philosoph in philosophy. In psychoanalysis, consciousness is actually used in contrast to the unconscious. Um, I mean, if we go to Freud, you go and you see that he has the perception system, which is not consciousness. You have the consciousness, which is looking at the perception and makes some kind of idea of itself. And then for Freud, the big thing is that this is not fully, it's not enough to fully explain the, mental, the workings of the what Freud called the mental apparatus, and that's why we have the unconscious. So for Freud, consciousness is the name that we need to use in order to describe what we can readily see about the workings of the mental apparatus, and we see that it's not enough, hence we bring in the unconscious. For philosophy, consciousness is that which is standing vis-a-vis -vis the world and has a conception, a notion of itself. Both concepts are problematic because both concepts, both in philosophy, not all schools of philosophy have that, uh, the idea of consciousness. Both in philosophy and in Freud, the whole starting point is Descartes. And this is what Heidegger insists. We don't start with consciousness. We don't start with self-awareness. We do start with agency, perhaps, but we do start actually as a body in the world in a, in a specific moment and place. That is the starting point. It's interesting, too, because, well, I, like I said, I agree when you brought up Descartes, I mean, Heidegger's argument, how we have to get out of this Cartesian kind of point of view. I'm like, that's true, that's true, that's a problem. But then when you said, you know, that there's a problem with like the unconscious and repression, 
I don't know what I would do without the ideas of repression and the unconscious. And then that makes me think, why am I so wedded to these ideas? Like I'm more yeah. wedded to them than I had realized I was. Because I was like, what do you mean there's no repression? What would we do? You know, like, that's but like what I it, talk about all the time. The, the, it's a very funny, it's funny actually, funny in the sense that it's interesting, very interesting to see about, for example, the concept of repression. Because repression, okay, in, Fre in Freudian theory, repression is, be because you have postulated consciousness, because then you say whatever is not conscious is unconscious, but not readily available, because if it was readily available, that would be pre-conscious. So that means something is forcing it back. So this, what is forcing it back, I need to postulate something that forces it back and keeps it there, and I need to give it a name. So it's called repression. So repression is a name that is given to, a to the explanation for a phenomenon, but the phenomenon has been already tainted, has been already tainted by our, orig our original point of view. Because we thought of the, the human being as a consciousness vis-a-vis -vis the world, because of that we think of the unconscious as something which is off limits, and because of that we need to have repression to keep things off limits. So it's not a primary datum, it's a conclusion. Repression is a conclusion. We haven't seen repression. It's an attempt to understand what is happening. So that's not the only way of understanding it. So for example then, with, uh, with Lacan, okay, he's using terms like repression and so on, because there are useful shortcuts. But if you look at it carefully, whenever he needs to go into the deeper, deeper workings of this, uh, phenomena, he's not using these terms anymore, Lacan. It's not, it's not a useful term. It's useful as a jargon. It's useful when you have a patient and you think about the patient and you speak to a colleague, this was a repressed fantasy and so on and so forth. But really, what you really mean is that there is something discursive which is not allowed, not allowed, is broken, the connection of this discursive element, a fantasy, for example, or a desire or a wish, the connection of that with a discursive element, that, uh, um, discursive network that you are occupying is being shattered. And why is it shattered? We do not know, but it's not the question of a force that is pushing it back. It's a question of a connection that doesn't happen. And uh, in this, apropos this, in modern work in post-Lacanian psychoanalysts who are working on the assumption of mathematics having something to do with that. They're trying to describe phenomena that in old Freudian terms could be thought as phenomena of repression. They're trying to describe these phenomena in with concepts like boundary, limit, topology, compactness, and so on. So the question of repression is not relevant anymore. So I find that very, very interesting. But the main thing I'm seeing is that Heidegger's argument that you reach conclusions and the conclusions you are reaching are tainted by the assumptions that you had, which were critically, non-critically accepted. I mean, you, you accepted them without thinking too much. And uh, so, yes. Yeah, the whole Western world is built on these subject-object assumptions. Yes. Yes, and you, you see that the modern psychiatry, 
in complete oblivion of what Heidegger has said and so on and so forth. They are speaking in terms of, yes, trying to see the human being. That, I mean, it's, it's a confusing subject. Let's not go there. Yeah, we know. Yeah. Yes, yes. We know, <laughs> we know there are problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, so can I ask you quickly, how did you get into psychoanalysis in the first place? I mean, I spoke a lot about Freud. My original, my original contact was Freud. I found some texts of Freud, and I started reading them, and I thought that this makes very good sense. And indeed, Freud's attention to details and Freud's attention to the coherency and consistency of his uh, formulation, it is remarkable. The fact that Heidegger comes and has arguments against it is not relevant. The thing is that Freud is a, an honest person who goes very slowly and very carefully on so on what he's trying to understand. So, me, I found texts of Freud and I thought they, they are offering some kind of window into the psyche. And I was interested. And I was hooked, let's say. <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> I yes. got hooked and, by uh, Freud young. I, I, have, I, have great <laughs> I have great respect for Freud. And uh, obviously, I mean, I could not, not have respect for Freud. But I mean, even with taking into consideration Heidegger's uh, critique and all the limitations that perhaps are visible, perhaps are not so visible, the limitations of Freud, I think he is one of the unique individuals of the last few centuries. And yes. For sure. And you said you have an event coming up this weekend? Yes, actually, there is. Uh, I'm teaching. I'm doing some teaching within the CIFAR. CIFAR is Center for Freudian Analysis and Research in London, and we have a short course about diagnosis. What is diagnosis in psychoanalysis, and what is diagnosis in general? Uh, and uh, I'm giving a talk this Saturday, the second in a series of four talks, not all talks given by me, uh, in connection to diagnosis. Yes. Last week it was Darian Leader, and in a few weeks' time, other speakers are going to take over from me. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Christos Tombras, a supervising psychoanalyst practicing in London. For more information about his book, Discourse Ontology, Body and the Construction of a World, from Heidegger through Lacan, and upcoming workshops, courses, and other works, please visit the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, Poetry, published by Trapart Books, 2019, and also available as an ebook through iBooks and Kindle. For more information, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T R A P A R T.net. 
You may also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.